1944. That was the last time the Olympic Games were canceled. But it wasn't a virus that put a halt to those games. No, it was the Second World War. Ladies and gentlemen, this is New York, NBC Newsroom again. Men and women of the United States, this is a momentous hour in world history. This is the invasion of Hitler's Europe, the zero hour of the Second Front. The men of General Dwight Eisenhower are leaving their landing barges, fighting their way up the beaches into the fortress of Nazi Europe. Those games never played out for the entire world to see. Tokyo isn't canceling their summer games due to the spread of COVID-19, but they are postponing them to 2021. But we want you know, this Olympic flame to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, this is why we will work hard now to undertake uh, this extremely challenging task of uh, postponing the games and of organizing postponed games, which never happened before. So we have no blueprint uh, for this. So if there's no blueprint for the upcoming games, how does the IOC approach the games in Tokyo in 2021? Where can an athlete train under these conditions? When will it be safe for all of us to gather in large venues? What will we learn from all of this? IOC member Dick Pound will help us answer some of these questions. I'm Donovan Bennett. And I'm Richard Deitch. And this is the Sports on Pause podcast. I wish to believe that the journey of the flame in your country will offer joy and hope to the people of the whole world who are currently in pain and challenged. Let us hope that the Olympic flame, symbol of peace and solidarity, will extinguish the virus and defeat it. And then the Olympic movement, united and free from this vicious enemy, will gather in Tokyo to celebrate the biggest sport event that unites the whole world, the Olympic Games. Good luck, our Japanese friends. Minasan, ganbate kudasai. Arigato gojaimashita. Thank you. Well, the postponement of the Tokyo Games is among the largest stories when we think about the nexus of sports and the coronavirus, because there are so many tentacles to this. How does it impact the athletes? How does it impact the broadcasters who pay billions of dollars for the Olympics? How does it impact fans? How does it impact the country of Japan and the city of Tokyo? What are the insurance aspects to this? Donovan Bennett, this cancellation, perhaps more than any other cancellation, is the one that I think the world sports fans took notice of. Yeah, you're right. And you mentioned all of the layers. Uh, and just look at the dollars, right? And Japan spent, you know, a trillion yen uh, getting ready for these games. Uh, that's more than seven times the original estimates. And so certainly they're going to want to see that investment realized. And when you're talking about members of the IOC involved, members of local government involved, and obviously the TV partners, so many people had to basically lobby to see where this was going. And that's why it's, I think, fascinating to really unpack well, how was this decision made? And for some housekeeping, the games were going to go on scheduled July 23rd to August 8th in 2021. The Paralympic Games will be then August 24th to September 5th. But how do we know it's going to be much better 
a year from now. There was someone actually who was maybe a little bit of a whistleblower and saying, you need to acknowledge that this is going to be an issue. That person is Dick Pound. He's a former Canadian swimming champion who's been an IOC member since 1978, the longest serving member. He was the first president of the World Anti-Doping Agency, and doping is a real issue now. And he was also named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People. And in terms of the Olympic movement, he's very influential. Richard William Duncan Pound is our next guest on Sports on Pause. And now we bring on IOC board member from his home in Montreal, Dick Pound. And thank you so much for joining us. And let's get right into it. Take us into the decision-making process. What was the final straw in moving the games to July 2021? And what were the considerations there? Well, it was a complicated series of uh, interrelationships that had to be managed. But uh, by and large, we started off with the hope that uh, we could continue to use the July 2020 dates and that the virus was not going to uh, accelerate at the pandemic level that everybody feared. But as we were getting to beginning of March, uh, you had to recognize that there was an elephant in the room, and that is that it might not be possible to have everybody come either because the virus was still virulent in Japan or because it had spread to many parts of the world and was affecting athletes, uh, training, public health, uh, transportation, all of those things. So at a certain point in time, uh, the IOC started to talk with the athletes, with the international sports federations, with the national Olympic committees, with the Japanese organizers uh, to say, look, this may not work out the way we, uh, we would hope. So let us start thinking about what a plan B might look like. And plan B could be simply an outright cancellation of the games, uh, which is obviously the, the worst alternative, or a postponement, which would be complex, but at least it would save the Olympics for the current generation of Olympic athletes. And it would also mean that the huge investment in the games and the infrastructure incurred by the Japanese uh, would not simply be uh, laid to waste. And as that consensus is developing, we were in contact, regular contact with the World Health Organization. And so they said, look, the curve is not going down or leveling. It's actually going up and becoming steeper and steeper. And so the consensus was that we should postpone the games. And then once the, the Japanese took that on board and said, yeah, we would much prefer to postpone them to cancel, uh, it was fairly easy to make a, a decision. And I think I think it was the right one. And I think uh, it was the best for, for everybody, including the athletes. I want to ask you about complexities in postponing the Olympics, because you mentioned something that's very key there, postponement versus cancellation. And I wonder if you could give us some insight into how do you navigate a postponement with television partners? And how do you navigate a postponement with all the insurance provisions that exist? Because obviously, it's not just getting the athletes there, but it's so much more from all the various uh, agreements and business that sort of surrounds the Olympic Games. Absolutely. I I think the Olympic Games involving 11,000 athletes from 206 countries and uh, 35 to 40 international sports federations, not to mention 
your sponsors and broadcasters and media and, and uh, all of the things that go with that. It's probably the most complex event, a peaceful event on the uh, the face of the planet. So there are a lot of things that, that need to be done. And the good thing about the Olympics is that there's so much goodwill involved in, in trying to make this happen that uh, people will be approaching the many challenges with not a view of, oh my God, what an obstacle to overcome, but uh, this is a, a challenge that we're taking on and that, that we, we want it to work out. So it'll work out. You saw the elephant in the room that this was going to be an issue for quite some time, so much so that President Thomas Bach and Mark Adams, the spokesperson, were resolute that the games would go ahead on July 24th. And they even walked back some of your statements saying it's the right of every IOC member to interpret the decision of the IOC executive board. When you heard that, how did it make you feel? And how did that ship get turned around that more board members started to feel and believe the same things that you did? Well, sometimes I think you simply have to state the obvious. And the the obvious fact here was that something that none of us could control, and that is the the, the spread of the uh, COVID virus. And, and, and suddenly somebody says, look, you've got to understand, this is not getting better. It's getting worse. And at that point, your original plan, and you try and stick to your original plan. I mean, we've had that for seven and a half years uh, at this point of, of preparation for a start on July 24th, 2020. But it may not happen, and, and it would be irresponsible not to think about what the alternatives can be and, and how to put them together. You mentioned the fact that you can't necessarily predict what's going to happen. Why then the language of the games will happen no later than 2021, given that we don't know what's going to happen with the vaccine, we don't know how other parts of the world are going to be able to react. Why actually put that language out there that they're certainly happening next summer in July? I think there are probably two reasons for that. Uh, one is you want to keep everyone focused on getting something done by a, a specific date. And the second is that if it slips over from 2021, you're already into the next Olympic Games, uh, which are Winter Games. Uh, I mean, these games are going to happen within, what, six or seven months? of the uh, the completion of the the 2021 version of the summer games there's physical limitations on uh, on what the sports system and, and the world can absorb at that point so i think it's good to have objectives and, and people are used to, to working to deadlines uh, you know in my business uh, in the law you, you know there are always deadlines and that, that's what helps you get things done is because you know it has to be done at that point and, and for olympic athletes Knowing when to peak is very important to achieve your, your optimal performances. And sponsors and broadcasters all need to know uh, those deadlines as well because they've got other programming requirements. So it, it's a very complicated set of things that will be assisted by having a deadline. You know, the 2020 deadline was set, I think, six and a half years ago. And once that pin goes in the paper, Everybody starts planning on, on the basis of that particular date, transportation, security, accreditation, accommodation, and so forth. So I think that's a practical aspect that uh, had to be considered and, and acted upon. And to give the IOC credit for that, it acted upon it quickly and fixed the date for the start, probably four weeks ahead of what people expected. 
So based on that logic, is it fair to say that if for whatever reason you can't have games in July of next year or qualifiers beforehand or testing long enough beforehand that instead of continuing to kick the can down the road, that the next step would be just to cancel the Tokyo games? That, in, in my view, yes, and, and it's not a, a matter that we've discussed. Uh, I think one of the things you need to do is, is not to speculate about those possibilities because they tend to become self-fulfilling prophecies. So the new plan is July 23rd, 2021, and nothing will change that except for uh, events beyond everyone's control, such as a pandemic or whatever <laughs> the 2021 version of the uh, the world-shaking event will be. One of the things that other sports leagues um, are probably going to have to come to grips with prior to the Olympic Games starting in 2021 is the idea of asymptomatic carriers is someone who doesn't have any symptoms of coronavirus, might not even test positive for coronavirus, but can be an asymptomatic carrier who then ultimately passes the virus on to someone else. I imagine the IOC is going to be think of a million different contingencies, but I would love to just sort of get your thoughts on what really feels like kind of a very scary and doomsday-ish scenario, not just for the Olympic Games, but for every sports league. Well, it's certainly a risk that needs to be addressed. I have a lot of confidence in the combined brain power of all of the scientists that are working day and night on finding a vaccine that will be effective. And, and that's one of the things that uh, for, for many life-threatening illnesses around the world has, um, you know, that's why smallpox no longer exists, for example. And, and I think there will be a vaccine for this uh, and we need it in, in great quantity and we need better testing, better factors to identify whether somebody, even without the symptoms, uh, may nevertheless be a carrier. And those are all, what can I say, normal risks in, in dealing with uh, communicable diseases. Some of the estimates around the budget of investment in Japan are anywhere from $12 billion to north of $25 billion. What's the financial impact of postponing to Japan and the IOC? Or can you recoup some of that investment by deferring the games uh, 12 months later? Well, I think you can recoup some of it. Uh, in, in some cases, it'll be a a timing difference uh, as opposed to an absolute gain or loss. It certainly will, will cost a certain amount, and I don't know how reliable the estimates are that, are that have appeared in the media, but to keep the ball up in the air for an extra 12 months, it certainly will involve some uh, financial impact. You've got to keep staff in place. You've got to have security arrangements in place. You've got to either retain or find a new Olympic village and all of those sort of things that, that do involve cost. But I think that was one of the considerations that the Japanese weighed in preferring a postponement to an outright cancellation. For any anti-doping regime to have teeth, you need two things. You need it to be random and you need it to have some sort of high frequency. Right now, we have neither of those things and we won't for the foreseeable future. On the topic of drug testing, how do you maintain some sort of standard uh, so that the games can go on and be as close to fair as possible a year from now? Well, of the two elements uh, that you you mentioned, uh, random is actually the least 
important. Really, what makes a, a testing program effective is targeted testing. Identify those athletes who are at the highest risk, find them and test them out of competition, no notice basis during the preparation period. But there, there's very little doping these days done uh, with what used to be called race day drugs. Uh, if you're using steroids or, or, or similar programs, you use those programs during your training. And so if you want to have an effective testing program, you have to think like somebody who's doping. What is this person who's going to be in, a, in an event that occurs on July 30th? What is that athlete, depending on the sport, likely to be taking? When will he or she be taking it? And you've got to find them and, and test them uh, on that basis. The other thing is, is that uh, it's, it's not so much the number of tests that makes uh, an effective testing program. It's the targeting. Nobody really cares, I mean, in the competitive sense, about the, the athlete who's going to come 300th. It's your finalists and your medalists that you want to make sure are, are clean. So there's that. Uh, second thing is there are other non-analytical positive methods of determining whether there's been uh, doping or not. Biological passports uh, are, are a perfect example of that. Investigations, frankly, investigations and whistleblowers catch more doping athletes than, than the tests do. Tests are catching what, give or take 2% positive. Uh, and we know that there's a lot more doping going on than, than 2%. So we've developed additional means of, of identifying whether or not doping has occurred. And we've become much more scientifically uh, savvy about uh, other methods of, of determining doping. We know these athletes are on at times a four-year cycle in terms of when they taper and when they peak. We know in terms of investment, they try and garner their financial resources around, you know, Olympic years. And this has obviously impacted training. We had stories of you know, swimmers driving around, you know, trying to find backyard pools to train in and people trying to train in their homes. When the games do happen a year from now, Will there be an asterisk around some of the results and some of the medalists and winners? I wouldn't think so. Uh, I mean, uh, you, you've leveled the, the opportunity field, let's put it that way, uh, as much as possible by giving, in effect, starting today, 16 months notice. And that's plenty of time for uh, athletes uh, at that level to plan uh, their training regime, to plan how they're going to peak for the the particular event and the particular day that it occurs. So in that sense, I, I think we've done the best uh, we can for the athletes of the world by giving them all this notice and not leaving it as an, sort of a, a, a floating date that nobody's ever certain about. But job one here, and, and many of the athletes have recognized that themselves, job one is, is to get our hands around this pandemic. This is a existential threat to the entire world. And then we'll do our best for the competitions. I think you'll find we'll have our share of, of Olympic and world records uh, in uh, July 2021, the, the same way we would have this year. They might just be a little better. Dick Pound, we thank you for your time and insights. Stay safe. Thank you for the invitation to uh, participate. Donovan, I think the news out of the Dick Pound interview with us 
is how much has changed since we interviewed him a couple of days ago. Since that interview, the chief executive of the Tokyo Olympic Games has said there is no guarantee, in fact, that the Games will take place in 2021, given that um, Japan is now under an emergency declaration from their prime minister. So one of the takeaways that I, um, that I come away with from the Dick Pound interview is, given all the sort of great plans that Tokyo now has to pull this off in 2021, the virus may be making plans of its own. It's a great point. And remember, the decision to postpone in some circles was a little bit controversial only because before the Olympics were postponed, Japan looked like it had coronavirus infections contained. People said, well, why don't we just wait it out? Now the games have been postponed. Tokyo cases are spiking continually. And you mentioned it. The city's government is requesting people stay home. Ultimately, it was the right decision, but that doesn't mean it was an easy one. So again, thank you to Dick Pound for taking us through how difficult it was. The other thing he mentioned was that he thought we may see more records being broken next year uh, because athletes had longer to train. It is important to note that all athletes who have already qualified and the quota places that were already assigned for the Olympics in 2020 will remain unchanged moving forward. So some athletes have the solace of knowing that their ticket is booked. And it's important to know why that's important for those athletes who know that they're qualified is that they can get sponsorship money. They can get advertisement money. They know that that investment in themselves is going to eventually pay off, assuming there are games in a year. So they've got that personal insurance. In this issue, that word, insurance, has been a hot button issue. And really, there was some news that was broke not too long ago about the fact that Wimbledon was very pragmatic and had insurance in this case. And now that we're seeing all of these big tournaments, big sporting events being canceled, the financial repercussions are massive, negatively for most, but for Wimbledon, maybe positively. And remember, since 1877, Wimbledon has always been the major of all majors in the tennis world until now. The main board of the All England Club, they shut it down. The championships not happening in 2020 due to the public health concerns so the 134th championships will instead be staged from June 28th to July 11th next year. In fact, the entire grass court season, gone, canceled. The Rogers Cup in Canada, played on hard court. It's already canceled, same fate. What if any tournaments are safe from cancellation and what can spectators expect the next time they are on tennis grounds? And who better to ask about Wimbledon and any tennis-related topic than my former colleague at Sports Illustrated, John Wertheim. You can see John's work on the Tennis Channel, 60 Minutes, and he is undoubtedly one of the most influential voices in the sport. And John Wertheim joins us on the Sports on Pause podcast. For the first time since World War II, one of the most beloved tennis tournaments in the world will not be taking place. It was announced early Wednesday morning that Wimbledon will be canceled over COVID-19 concerns. Chairman Ian Hewitt saying in a statement, quote, This is a decision that we have not taken lightly, and we have done so with the highest regard for public health and the well-being of all those who come together to make Wimbledon happen. Okay, as we mentioned in the intro, John Wertheim 
is a longtime senior writer for Sports Illustrated, as well as a correspondent for the famous American show 60 Minutes. He joins us today because he has covered professional tennis for many decades now. And one of the more interesting stories, John, that we have come across as it relates to the coronavirus is that Wimbledon, in kind of a remarkable bit of foresight, had catastrophic insurance when it came to pandemics. And you'll be able to fill us in on this, but it looks like Wimbledon will be able to recoup some of the millions of dollars, John, that it obviously would have lost given the postponement of the tournament. Yeah, and I think when when you figure that they are not paying prize money and they don't have their conventional expenses and they don't have greenskeeping fees, it's really uh, a, a remarkable Remarkable bit of foresight, as you say, Richard, but also a, a remarkable bit of money, given uh, the way other sports are going. And I, I mean, I think there's a the bigger story here is just Wimbledon's approach to running their business, and it's it's a lot of defense more than offense. And I think that fits into this. But no, uh, whoever said we we were joking, whoever said 17 years ago, hey, this SARS thing, this could come back in a different form. We should really look into pandemic insurance. They are the 2020 Wimbledon champion. Hmm. Well, it's funny reading some of the comments on social media about the fact that, you know, the All England Club and the group at Wimbledon was more ready for this than many governments around the world. What about other tournaments and other organizations? Have you heard anything about similar measures or is this pretty much an outlier? This is very much an outlier. And even the, you know, the French Open, which is a few weeks away on the calendar and the other uh, the other summer major and only the, the English Channel away in distance is in a very different position where if they don't get this event played in 2020, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in lost revenue. There's debt service on a roof they're building on the center court. They are really struggling to try and find dates on the calendar. Uh, Wimbledon is a very different position. There are a lot of tennis tournaments that are going to be in some deep financial distress if, if their event doesn't get played this year. Can you give us a sense between the money's lost from places like ESPN and the BBC, money's lost from revenue for ticket sales, and everything else that Wimbledon generates during those couple of weeks, what potentially could the loss have been in the millions? If they didn't have this policy, we're talking maybe $300, $400 million. I mean, we're talking about broadcast rights. We're talking about sponsorship. There's so much. What people don't realize about tennis events is a lot of times there is a huge hospitality play where there are all sorts of tents and villages where hedge funds come and have dinners before the matches. I mean, there's a lot going on on the grounds apart from just what you see in the stands. Ticket sponsorships. I mean, it's interesting in, in the case of Wimbledon, though, because, I mean, obviously there's no media money coming in when they don't have an event to broadcast. But, you know, w- without paying prize money, they may end up, I mean, they, they made a profit last year reportedly of about $60 million. So if they're getting, you know, not nine figures on this insurance policy, perversely, they may come out better. But this is very much an outlier because a lot of events uh, are really struggling. And I, I suspect some events may not be able to survive this. There is a cottage industry, a sub-economy around big tennis events. And although Wimbledon, the tournament itself will be okay, what will that mean to the people, the community around the tournament who expect to have it every year? Yeah, it's a great point. And I guess we see this with every sector, right? I mean, the restaurant industry is more than just what happens in the restaurants, their whole 
distribution channels and farming and it's the same way with uh, with tennis. I mean, we talk about the players and we talk about the events, but there are all of these economies and there are, you know, every, everything from coaches and stringers and physiotherapists who work at the events to, as you say, there are people that rent out their house in Wimbledon Village and that's a not insignificant portion of their income for the year. And there are all sorts of everything from T-shirts being printed to people who, you know, have parking lots. I mean, there is a huge economy that goes far beyond what people see at, at center court. And they, you know, unfortunately, they do not have pandemic insurance. So th this is still causing a, um, a, a huge amount of distress. But again, Wimbledon, this policy is really remarkable because this goes beyond. I mean, I think if you look into these policies, even the NBA teams, arenas, a lot have sort of force majeure, sort of traditional, if there's a fire, we have 70% coverage. But this is really remarkable to have pandemic actually enumerated in your insurance policies is really a remarkable bit of, of foresight that obviously has, has paid big dividends today. I think one of the major stories that will exist in tennis as we head over the next couple of weeks and months will be the U.S. Open in New York. The date of that tournament remains on, at least as we are taping this, but as anyone who has been willing to read uh, you know, any newspaper or website or watch any television show worth its uh, sort of accurate weight here. Uh, everyone knows what's going on in New York in terms of the death toll, in terms of the cases. Where do you stand right now in terms of the possibility of that tournament being played when at least it is currently scheduled? It's awfully hard to see. I mean, bear in mind right now, the National Tennis Center in Queens, which Queens has become really the, the epicenter of this entire crisis. And it's about six miles from Elmhurst Hospital. Right now, the National Tennis Center is being used essentially as a MASH hospital. I mean, the indoor facility has hundreds of beds. The kitchens that are usually for the U.S. Open, for the, you know, the, the player's sushi, is now being used to get food to first responders and to medical health professionals. The other thing is tennis is such a global sport, which is something I, I love about it, and I, I suspect you do as well, Richard. It's really one of the sport's great virtues, but in this situation it's really a complicating factor, right? I mean, it's not like they're, you know, 15 members of the Raptors get tested, and in theory, you've, you've got a team that can go back out there at some point. With players flying and coming in from all over the world and bringing support staffs and, you know, the COVID situation, the last few days of August, the beginning of September, when the U.S. Open is supposed to start, it may have calmed down in country X, but not country Y. Can you hold an event if not everyone has equal access to to playing in it. So in, in some ways, that's one of the great beauties of tennis, but I think that's really going to complicate matters when we talk about resuming the schedule. And yeah, I mean, playing the U.S. Open early September, given the scene on the ground in Queens right now is, uh, you know, it's pretty optimistic. It's funny because when you described the culture and the international nature of tennis, my thought told me, well, that sounds very similar to golf. And the golf schedule in terms of majors has just been pretty much moved back other than the open. Could you see a scenario if we have rap testing in the future that some tennis tournaments are social distance? You already have Hawkeye. You know, maybe you don't need the, the, the umpire in the same way. No fans necessarily in the stands. Is that something that's possible given the parameters of the sport? I think that's probable. I mean, it's interesting. Wimbledon was very 
up front early on saying we don't want one of these closed door scenarios, right? We don't want uh, one of these events where we're not letting spectators in, but we'll broadcast this. And you wonder if that was something that may have had some bearing on this insurance policy. Hey, listen, if you're still holding the event, you're still giving out a trophy and getting these TV revenues, then the insurance policy doesn't kick in. Other events, though, are much more agreeable to this closed door scenario. I mean, the, the one thing I would say about tennis is you've got, you know, you've got dozens and dozens of players. They're all sharing a locker room. They all have coaches. TV, as you guys know, you know, TV has a, a significant footprint. You've got camera operators. You've got a truck. You've got catering for the players. Maybe you don't need officials, but you probably need a couple just to sort of make sure the matches go on. Pretty soon, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. So, Obviously, it's different from, from the U.S. Open, which usually has hundreds of thousands, but it's still going to be um, an awful lot of people in, in one place. And I think the players really want to get back out there. I think there are these events that see this as, as life and death. I think tennis events are going to get very creative in terms of how to stage this. Do we pick a different date on the calendar? Do we play what's usually a clay court event, not even on clay? I think People are going to do what they have to do to get through this, but I do think there are a lot of complications to tennis that you don't have in other sports. John, um, given your role in the sport as somebody who's a longtime insider and reporter, and I imagine you've had discussions with people who play as well as who are around the sport, can you give listeners a sense of just what the top players in the world are doing right now? And do they have access perhaps at their personal homes to practice on their facilities to continue to stay in shape, that would obviously be an advantage for the top players versus those who could not afford that? It's a great question because I think that's really going to have a, a significant bearing. And you have a lot of income inequality in tennis. Maybe it's justified. You know, Serena Williams deserves every penny she makes. Same for Roger Federer as far as I'm concerned, but there is a, uh, a big staircase down. So it doesn't seem like anyone is playing or at least admitting to playing. There's There have been some advisories that even though you're clearly social distance in terms of being you know, dozens of feet apart, a net in between, it's still not advisable. So players are playing against the wall. Very few players I've seen, at least on social media, are saying that they're actually playing on a, on a conventional court. But, but I think you're right. I mean, when, when you have a home gym, as Roger Federer does, or you have your own academy, as Rafa Nadal does, that's a huge advantage. I mean, I, I was speaking to, to Vasek Pospisil, the, the Canadian player, who's, you know, he's, he's not a Wimbledon champion, but the guy's been in the top 25, and he'll play in the main draws of these events, and he's basically marooned in an apartment in Vancouver. That's a lot different from Roger Federer with, with his gym in the basement and the tennis court out back. So I think um, some of these advantages that are conferred on the top players that you always, I mean, you know, they're the same way they fly, they fly to events privately. They don't have to wait in line at the Hertz counter. They've got their own physios if their back hurts them. There are a lot of sort of inherent advantages that top players have, and I think this is a case where they're probably going to be accentuated. Everybody's saying, boy, how are Serena and Roger Federer, 38, 38, 9 years old, how are they going to come back from this? And I sort of say, I, I worry less about them than the guy who's ranked number 75 and has, you know, his seeing his bank account dwindle and he's doing push-ups and sit-ups in his apartment. Um, I think that's a player who's going to have more rust to shake off when this thing ends. To that point, and we've talked a lot about the big tournaments, the majors, what I worry about is the smaller tournaments, the challenger tour type tournaments. If those don't have any revenue for a year, could we see some of those stops on the tour just go away and not be able to rebound a year from now? I think 
the tennis calendar is going to look different when we get back. And yeah, I think there are a lot of events that really operate on razor thin margins and they are going to have to consider their whole business model. And, you know, I mean, maybe this isn't so, I mean, this all sounds very doom and gloom. I mean, we've been talking a long time about tennis needs to pad out its calendar. There are too many events. It's hard for fans to follow. You know, maybe the, you know, maybe the shakedown is healthy. I mean, maybe this sport is better off focusing on the top 100 players and not 500 players. I mean, I think um, this may be, in a, a weird way, this may ultimately be a good time for the sport to reassess itself and figure out what's the most efficient business model, what the market can really bear. But, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of events that were really sort of uh, very much on the margins before this and then not having a tournament, uh, you wonder if they're going to survive and exist next year. John Wertheim, we look forward to reading your work on uh, Sports Illustrated's various uh, platforms, as well as seeing you on the Tennis Channel, as well as 60 Minutes. Thank you for your insight today. Anytime. Stay healthy, guys. Thanks again to John. So much great perspective. The two things that really jumped out at me when he said them and I started taking notes uh, immediately was one, uh, the impact on the sub-economies around Wimbledon and all of the people that need that tournament to happen year in, year out for the business. We, we talk about the impact on athletes and on administrators, but there is a real impact to everyday human lives just like ours. The other thing is he actually changed my mind on this. I was afraid for the Serenas and the Rogers of the world who at this point in their career are looking to stack up major after major after major and they're getting older. But he brought up a great point. The fact that they have the budget to be able to stay in top condition throughout a extended pause where maybe if you haven't won as much on tour, you aren't able to do that. And so the difference in earnings may be a difference in how people come back after the pause. That was really fascinating to hear. Donovan, don't be retiring Roger Federer and Serena Williams anytime soon. As John Wertheim uh, pointed out, uh, they are at least in a financial position to continue their incredible run in the sports. We like to end this podcast with uh, what we call the last word, and that is a couple of things between Donovan and myself. In terms of just things that uh, struck us that can be helpful in your own education on uh, the coronavirus and potentially the coronavirus and the nexus of sports. One of the things that um, I've been listening to is the Epidemic Podcast, which is a weekly podcast on public health and the coronavirus hosted by Dr. Celine Gounder and Dr. Ronald Klein. And they bring in the world's leading experts and epidemiologists and public health officials on how the general public can tackle what is both a macro problem, as well as a micro problem. Something else that struck me, Donovan, was um, if you have children at home, you're going to be seeing them get some extended screen time. And one of the things I thought was very cool is something called Cool Math for Kids. And it's designed for children 12 and under. Google that, go online and find it. It features a range of math lessons and games designed to make uh, the subject of math entertaining. So it is a website uh, that you can invite your kids to go to, and you will not feel so guilty about the additional screen time. 
Yeah, the Epidemic podcast is a great one. I heard about it as one of the hosts was profiled on this other upstart podcast that's pretty good. It's called Sports Media with Richard Dice. Not sure if you've heard of it, um, but you may not, want to give it no, a listen. I have not. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. Um, but, uh, you know, the two things um, that I've, you know, really enjoyed recently, and I'm a visual learner, like many people, I'm sure, and The Atlantic has a great photo essay. It's called The Visual Landscape of a World Shaped by Pandemic. Just beautiful photos of sights and scenes that you never thought you would see, but we are seeing right now because of what is happening. The other piece of news that I think is really interesting on maybe how we beat this was a story that came out of the Washington Post. And the the title is Apple Google debut major effort to help people track if they've come in contact with the coronavirus. So we know it's an ongoing conversation about privacy and data. Well, two titans in the world, Apple and Google, two rivals, putting their heads together to see if they can help track and slow the virus. And maybe if they are successful in that effort, we can see the flattened curve and maybe sports return soon. Until then, we will continue to have this conversation. It's one you enjoy. Please like, share, favorite, and subscribe. And if there's something you really want to hear, let us know. Until next time, please stay safe, take care of yourself, and take care of others.